and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. My guest today is Doug Cartwright. Doug is a speaker, an author. He is also the CEO and founder of The Daily Shifts. It's an online company and app dedicated to inspiring, lasting transformation of the mind, body, and soul. And it was born from his personal journey of introspection and healing. And he talks all about that personal journey on this podcast conversation, all the way from growing up in a very Mormon household to experimenting with psychedelics, the loss of his father. It's a, it's a, it's a very enthralling story, I must admit. I interject infrequently, but when I do, I have follow-up questions that I think are useful and fun. And we talk about boobs, which is interesting. And um, overall, I think it's an important conversation because it is a first-person account that proves the notion that we have no idea how life is going to unfold for us. And sometimes, occasionally, often, the worst-case scenario, the thing that is the worst thing that ever happened to us, our most painful and horrific experience ends up being some kind of blessing in disguise or lesson or invitation or opportunity in the future. And our job is to merely find the next most powerful and invisible step on the path. And we cultivate that path with our heart and our trust and our faith. And Doug, I think, is a living, breathing example of how and why that can happen. So this is a fun conversation. Doug is a great storyteller. He is eloquent and personable and relatable. And I really like this one. I had a great time listening. I joke at some point that I need a bowl of popcorn. And uh, maybe you do too. Make some popcorn because the first 20 minutes or so are, are really good. So without further ado, here is Doug Cartwright. This episode is brought to you by Cured Nutrition. Cured is the leader in CBD supplementation with an entire line of products designed to take your everyday life to its ultimate potential. Their daily staples are formulated with an in-house clinical herbalist, which has taken the traditional CBD regimen to an entirely new level of optimization. If you're anything like me, you like waking up feeling good and living well, you've probably toyed around with the idea of finding healthy alternatives to jumpstart your morning. Personally, it's why I start my day with Cured Rise, which is their focus supplement. It's a powerhouse blend of functional mushrooms like lion's mane and cordyceps, broad spectrum CBD, and powerful adaptogens. It gives me clean, clear, and sustained energy without any of the caffeine jitters or a crash that I get with coffee. After I get going, Aura is next. It's another blend of functional mushrooms, CBD, and adaptogens, but it's got a twist We all know how important it is to sustain our immunity nowadays, and this covers all of my bases. The vitamin D, prebiotics, crucial antioxidants are delivered straight to the gut, which is the foundation of our emotional and physical health, am I right? Second brain. It's where the majority of our serotonin production and immune function begin, or it keeps everything in check performing at its best, so I have one less thing to worry about, and I obviously cannot forget Zen. I use it every night. It is certainly why it has become Cure's number one selling relaxation and sleep product. 
You know the long night spent tossing and turning? Yeah, not with this stuff. It has ingredients like reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, magnesium, passion flower, broad spectrum CBD. So thankfully, restlessness is something of the past. Cured Nutrition products are your answer for a daily dose of health. Visit curednutrition.com. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com. Be sure to use the coupon code LOVEBOMBS, and at the checkout, you will save 10% off your order. All right. Doug Cartwright, welcome to the podcast. Good to meet Jeremy, you. Jeremy, happy to be here, brother. We were, uh, we were just jamming, and I think we should just start with you wrote a book called Holy Shit, We're Alive. And I feel like for people that follow me, that's a vibe and an energy that I'm completely aligned with. But I don't know much about your book. And we've yeah. literally just met. So mm-hmm. do you mind sharing sort of who you are, what your deal is, and maybe giving an intro to Holy Shit, We're Alive, what that's about? Yeah, so the book came out August 10th, twenty, just last year, 2021. We hit number one Amazon bestseller day one, which was mind blowing. I did not think that was going to happen, but we pulled it off. The book caught some fire. And as we were prepping, you know, you have this book and I had, I had a whole team and editor and whatnot as we were, you know, prepping this book and we're working on like, you know, when you grab a book and you open up the inside cover and you're like, okay, what's this about? And that piece took a lot to really narrow down. And what we came up with is, the psychedelic sparked spiritual journey of an ex Mormon millionaire. And so we want to like really get in some really unique punches in there. And that's what we came up with. And so the, the, the book is kind of a, my story of process of my life from growing up in a very strong religious household to basically getting kicked out of that church and then having identity crisis and then losing my father then making tons of money in my early twenties and then blowing it all then kind of being this toxic sales bro. And then going through like a psychedelic spiritual awakening and kind of the, the wild story ups and downs of that. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a journey and it's been, you know, we've compacted a lot of that book. Yeah. It sounds like a movie, man. Like who's going to play you in in the movie? (laughs) I know. I would, I would love to do a movie of it at one point, but I would say from 2017 till 2019, I, I thought I was in the Truman show. Like I literally had really, I mean, sounds kind of fun, but deep existential crisis moments that were kind of actually scary of being like, what in the hell is going on? And do I need like professional help? Because I think I've lost my mind. And, um, Going through that was kind of difficult, but you know, at the, at the end of the story, it's a beautiful kind of reawakening and coming back together and being human. So, so I mean, I have to ask some follow up questions about that. Yeah, uh, you had crises where you thought you were losing your mind, and that for those that aren't uh, aware, the Truman Show is the Jim Carrey movie where he is mm-hmm. living his life, but he's literally in a reality TV show that he knows nothing about. So everything around him is entirely fake, fictitious, made up. Right. So why did you feel that way? Or how did you get into that space and out of it? Yeah. So growing up, I grew up in Utah. And when I tell people I grew up in Utah, the next question always is, 
were you Mormon? Right. <laughs> and yeah, I grew up Mormon. Um, and I was definitely raised in a bubble. And when you're raised in a bubble, you don't realize you're raised in a bubble because that's just how life is. And, you know, majority of the people I grew up with were all white. They were all conservative politically. They were all Mormon. I grew up in a wealthier neighborhood. And so everyone kind of had money. And so there was just like this picture perfect white picket fence life that was my entire, you know, adolescent childhood. And so there's this viewpoint of how the world is. And that's just what it was. And so the interesting thing about the Mormon church in particular growing up is all of the difficult questions, and this isn't just in Mormonism, this is kind of like in a lot of religions, but all the difficult questions are answered for you. So like, was I something before I was born? And what's the purpose of life? And what happens when I die? And like, what should I do with my life? Like all of those questions get answered for you. So you never are really taught or forced to think critically. And what it really reminds me of is my favorite astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Anyone who's seen like the Cosmo or read his books or, you know, he, he's, a, he's a great entertainer as well as a scientist. But he has a quote that says, it's much, much easier to be told um, what to think than to learn how to think for yourself. And that was just a perfect quote to describe my upbringing in Mormonism. It's your, you know, you're all the hard, difficult questions are taught or asked or are given to you. And then on top of that, just in society as a whole, we're all kind of taught the similar roadmap of, you know, go to school, get good grades, get into a good college, you know, get that internship, you know, grind, get that great paying job by the white picket fence. And kind of just check all of these boxes of what you're supposed to do in society. And so I was living that perfectly. You know, I did, I did a very good job in high school. I was student body vice president. I was captain of my football team. And, and where things actually started to shift. And everyone has a moment in their life um, where life didn't unfold the way they thought it was supposed to. And I think we have a lot of, as we get older, we realize those are much more common occurrences as we get older and older and older. Um, The life doesn't unfold the way we think it's supposed to. But my big moment for me where the big shift was is in Mormonism, those that have seen like the Book of Mormon musical or whatnot know that there's missionaries. And it's kind of like this big coming of age ritual where you get you know, they say it's inspired by God and you get your mission call and you open it up in front of your family and friends. And for two years, you leave your life and you go across the world or across the country and you you dedicate your entire life to converting people to Mormonism. And you don't watch TV, you don't listen to music, you get to email your family once a week and you're 100% dedicated to spreading the gospel, they say, and, and converting people. And it's, it's a really interesting culture because what's tied into that too, it's like, you're only worthy to be in God's presence if you do a mission. And on top of that, no young woman is going to want to want to marry a, a boy or a man who didn't go on a mission. So there's a lot of pressure to go. And it's almost in a sense, a commandment, like you're, you're expected to do this when you're 18 years old as every man in the church. So just Before to clarify you, that, yeah. if you do not go on the Mormon mission, then God does not love you and you will never find a woman to sleep with you and marry you. 
That- so it's it's not that black and white, but that's kind of the intention. It's kind of like you're supposed to go, you're required to go. And the women are taught, literally to taught, that you should strive to find a man who's a returned missionary. So you're almost like damaged goods or you're tainted if you don't do this. Right. And then if a woman who is in the Mormon faith starts dating somebody that hasn't done a mission and brings them to meet the parents, for example, is that like a big taboo, like no, no, Yeah, depending on the parents, like how strict your family is, there are for sure families in the church where their parents instruct their daughters that they can only marry returned missionaries. Full stop. Full stop. That's what it is. Like you only marry returned missionaries. And so there's this really intense cultural pressure to do this. Even if you don't want to, there were so many of us, like, cause a lot of times, like, I don't want to leave for two years. Like I want to go to college and have fun and live my life and have to go be a, a missionary for two years and, you know, potentially a really shitty third world country, you know? And so that time came for me. And, and as you prepare to go on that mission, there's a standard of worthiness, worthiness you're supposed to abide by. So for a minimum of six months before you go, it's like definitely no drinking, no smoking, no, no sex, no pornography, no masturbation. It's like a really, really tight line. And as like an 18 year old boy, it's really intense. And so I'm preparing to go because I have this, you know, I felt like I was a stand-up member of my community. I was captain of the football team. I had leadership positions in my school. So I was kind of like required to go. And I would say majority of my high school was Mormon as well. So it's very much expected of you. And before I left, I had a girlfriend and I got my mission call, super excited to go to Auckland, New Zealand. I felt like I hit the lottery on the mission call. I was like, yes, I had friends that got called to like Nebraska and I'm going to New Zealand. So I was feeling stoked for that. I had my good, my big goodbye party. I, I checked out of university had my flight the next day. I'm about to leave for two years. I go say goodbye to my girlfriend for the last time. I'm not going to see her for two years. It's this big deal. And of course, being in that experience, we broke some of the rules. We didn't even have sex, but we, we, we got a little too intimate. And the shame and the guilt of that was too big. It was like, oh, I can't confess now. Like I'm supposed to leave in the morning. Like I can't just cancel this flight, cancel my, I already had my goodbye party. So I just went anyways, knowing in my mind that like God was mad at me. He knew. And I was like living a lie. And so like, as this 18 year old kid, this shame and this guilt really, really started to build and build and build. And then eventually nine months into my mission, I've already been a missionary in New Zealand. I went through the motions, the shame and guilt just got so big that I finally decided to confess and like tell the president of the mission, be like, Hey, just so you know, there's some things I didn't clear up before I left. And as a punishment, they actually sent me home. So I got kicked off my mission early. So now here I am, this 19-year-old kid who's been the student body president, vice president, had good grades and captain of the football team. And now I get sent home from my mission early. And the community is like, I just felt like their eyes were just piercing me. So now I'm screwed up by God. You had like nine months of internal struggle where you didn't tell a single person about this yeah. shameful act. And then you go to the person in charge and you say, Hey, 
the night before I left, I touched my girlfriend's boobs or whatever it was. And you like, that's exactly, that's exactly what it was. Okay. You're like, I touched boobs. <laughs> I touched and boobs. You, and you'd put in nine months of uh, effort to advance mm-hmm. the cause. And then your punishment for touching your girlfriend's boobs was they kicked you out of this very important initiation thing that has huge significance for your family, community, et cetera. And you had to like go home with your tail between your legs, kind of just even more shame now or. Oh, so embarrassed. Cause then people so embarrassed. Like, Why did you, what happened? What, what did you yeah. do? So I'm like at the grocery store and then like my friend's mom sees me and she's like, Doug, what are you doing? And I'm like, uh, I'm home from my mission. They're like, are you, are you okay? Like, are you hurt? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I just, I screwed up. Like, sorry. Like in the middle of the grocery store, like, yeah, I, I fucked up. So sorry, you know? And so I just having those really difficult conversations was tough because it was like the first time in my life that I had like been the bad guy and that God was mad at me and I couldn't hide like, you know? And so there was so much shame and guilt and it was kind of like, Oh no, what do I do? And so I remember feeling subconsciously like this idea where it's like, I need to prove myself back to my community. I need to earn their respect back. To be an even better Mormon than than before. Yeah. So now it's like, now I'm going to really double down and I'm going to read my scriptures every day and go to church and pray harder. I'm going to earn their respect back. And really what was going on is I just had so much shame and guilt. and I didn't know how to deal with it. You know, it's like these uncomfortable emotions that we deal with, especially as men, we're taught like, be the tough guy, right? You know, be strong. And so this whole situation is happening internally. And as I'm preparing to go back, so, so the rule was like, they're like, Hey, if you have six months of perfect behavior, you can go back and finish. So I'm like, I'm going to do that. So as I'm preparing to go back, I'll never forget. My dad walks into the family room one day and like has like a family council. And he announces that he has stage four colon cancer. So a death sentence. So he's like 99% of people die from this. And I'm like, shit, my dad's going to die. And so that was, it's kind of so interesting. It's like a blessing in disguise that I came home because I got to spend the last really good year with my dad before he passed away. And I'll never forget sitting on the, the edge of his, my the stairs um, outside of his bedroom door with my mom. And my mom puts her arm around me to like comfort me. Like dad's about to die. He has hospice care. He's unconscious. He's on his last leg. She puts her arm around me and like all of these emotions that you would think that you would feel when your dad is dying comes up. So despair and grief and anger and frustration and deep sadness and sorrow. And I sort of start sobbing uncontrollably for about three seconds, because then I remember it's like, Oh, be strong for mom. Don't cry in front of mom, be the tough guy. So I start suppressing those emotions back down. So now internally I'm dealing with, shame and guilt and God's mad at me and anger and despair and loss because my dad died and my community doesn't approve of me because I'm not a returned missionary and I got kicked out. And so I'm like desperate of like, how do I get out of this mess? And around this time, exact same time, I get recruited at the University of Utah where I was attending to work at a sales company that was door to door selling alarm systems. And it was 100% commission. 
hang on before we transition yeah. into that chapter yeah. yeah i have to ask what happened with the girlfriend like you come home after nine months was it like happy to it see was, you or like your tainted goods because you touched my boobs bro like it's like it's like your tainted goods and she wasn't interested it's wow. like no way i could bring a non-return like um, someone who got sent not only didn't serve a mission but got sent home from their mission it's like worse than like, even not going it's like i was black i was like black marked like no wow. no no good mormon girl's gonna want to date me like that was our that was already out like yeah like no chance a good Mormon girl's gonna want to date me because I'm I'm tainted goods. So you were kind of just like drifting through this community your entire life, it seems, like not genuinely connected to or belonging anywhere. It seems yeah, and I ha- and I think, you know, not feeling like you belong, you ha- you take on new roles and new masks to play a specific character that gets approved of or validated mm. so you can fit in. Right. So I'm trying to think of like, maybe I'll be the really nice guy or maybe I'll be the really funny guy or I'll be the really cool guy. And I was playing all of these roles mm-hmm. to get validation and acceptance in my community. Yeah. And just to follow up on your dad, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about mm-hmm. your dad. And yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing so openly. If you were on the mission and you were in Auckland and you were not touching boobs and you were being a good Mormon, <laughs> And you got the weekly email that your dad is unwell. Would would you be able to go home and visit him, or you would have had to complete the mission for two years? So they would encourage they would have encouraged me to stay for two years, which is wow. insane. But I would have if I if I was like putting my foot down, like no, I'm going home. Right. I could have gone home, right? But you know, I, but it I, wouldn't have been for like a six months stretch or whatever it was that you got to spend with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, who knows? Like, cause my dad was like, Hey, like, I don't know if this is going to kill me in one year or in five. Right. You know? So he, his encouragement probably would have been like, Hey, go finish your mission, you know? And then we'll see what happens when you get back is my guess of how he would have responded. But I remember when, when he got diagnosed, I was like, Oh yeah, I'm definitely not going to go finish this thing. And so I have a lot of gratitude. Like, it's just interesting how the, how, how the, how life unfolds, how the universe works. It's like, you know, did the universe want me touching those titties before I left? Like kind of a blessing in disguise, you know, something I think about every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you, you said that. Well, not that you said titties though. A part of me was pleased with that vernacular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's so often the worst thing that happens to us ends up with time and some perspective being the biggest blessing or a tremendous opportunity or a thank goodness that happened that saved me from Mm -hmm. so much other stuff down the path. And I think we know this. I think we know this rationally that like this occurs, but it's always helpful to hear a firsthand account of that. Like, Oh yeah. No, you just never know how things are going to unfold. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you can, it's that famous Steve jobs quote, right? You can only connect the dots looking backwards. You can, you can't connect them going forward. Right. Okay. So you're, this all happens. And then you were alluding to a career shift as a Mm. salesman of some kind. Yeah. So in my head, it's like, I don't belong. My community doesn't approve of me. I don't know how to deal with the grief of my dad dying. And I need to earn everyone's respect back. So what's a way I can do that? And it's like, oh, I'll go make a bunch of money. 
because society looks at people who make money in a high regard. And if I have money, then I can buy things and like buy a nice car and go on cool trips and show everybody. And so age of like 2021, I became really obsessed with sales. And I read every sales book I could get my hand on. And I would stay up till two, three in the morning on YouTube, watching sales training videos. And I'd go to sales seminars. And I worked in, it was kind of like an MLM where it's like people, you make money under people beneath you. Uh, But it was a really good product and people liked it and the market needed it. And I ended up working for a company that was probably the first company to offer smart home security systems. So like from your cell phone, you can unlock your doors and change your lights and video cameras. And the market hadn't really seen that yet. And so it was like the perfect combination. And so I went out and I sold a ton. When I was 24, I'd made a million dollars. And this young kid in college on 100% commission sales, just balling out and being 24 and making that kind of money, it's just all I did was spend it because I was trying to like heal this internal wounds. And so I bought, you know, hundred thousand dollar Mercedes. I was going to every single sporting event. And if you, you know, scroll deeper into my Instagram, 2013, 2014, you'll see me front row at the world series and the NBA finals and a private suite with Kevin Durant for the super bowl and all of these concerts and the masters and just trying to like get experiences to make me feel okay. And, you know, I'm not the first person to tell this story, but we know how this goes. If you're not healed internally, nothing externally is going to solve that problem. And kind of went around that world and and realizing too, looking back at it now, I wish I wasn't conscious about this, but what I was actually doing was distracting myself from dealing with the loss of my father. So rather dealing with, sadness and despair and loss and anger, I just buried my head in work. So I wouldn't have to deal with it. And I was totally obsessed with my job. It's all I thought about. It's all I talked about. It's all I did. And, you know, and I, and I saw a lot of really good results and, you know, I eventually became the company sales trainer for a multi-billion dollar company. And I was traveling the country and working with thousands of different reps and doing sales training videos. And I was, you know, I was a celebrity within my company. I would literally go to company events and people would like pull me aside and take pictures with me. And, you know, it felt cool. I mean, outside of the industry, no one knows who the hell I am. So it wasn't, it was just like a a weird, unique bubble that was created. And I got to, I fell victim to what I've now coined. And I talked about in my book is the success void. And what the success void is, is if I were to give you Jeremy, a, a resume of my life at that point, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, it would look great. You know, makes a lot of money, travels the world, has a nice car. By the time I'd gone on a couple of dates with the runner-up of Miss USA, like going to VIP Drake parties on the rooftop W in Phoenix, like, but I was I was miserable. And it was actually a scary time in my life because I'd also left Mormonism too. I decided to leave Mormonism. Like it wasn't working for me. So I'm, here I am, you know, this 27-year-old kid with money but completely lost, completely unfulfilled. I hadn't dealt with my dad dying, had left Mormonism, doesn't have any internal guidance or direction. And it was actually a really scary time. I just felt like I was a lost soul there for a bit. It sounds like you were just completely adrift. Yeah. Um, and that you had created this other bubble 
that gave you belonging and community and admiration and all the things that you didn't get from yourself growing up. It's so fascinating how it's quite easy to look back and piece this all together. But I imagine in the moment, it was just terror, anxiety, uncertainty, overwhelm, fear, like all of it. Yeah, I would say I was just, I was constantly angsty. It was like, I couldn't, I couldn't sit alone by myself. I had to be doing something like, because if I was alone by myself, then I'd be stuck with my own thoughts and that shame and the guilt and the sadness and the despair would come out. It would start to bubble up. You know, these emotions that we don't deal with, they come, they surface up if we give them space to move. And so I just didn't want to give them space to move. And so anytime I cat, if I was at home for too long, it was like, Hey, I need to, I'm going to book a trip to LA for the weekend and go party. You know, it was just do whatever I can. So I wouldn't have to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I get it. In there, done that. Um, Okay, so then I feel like I'm just like, I need a bowl of popcorn where I'm like, yeah. and then what happened, Doug? Like, what was the next chapter, right? So you were crushing it as a salesman, putting superficial, materialistic gauze on the wounds of your heart and soul. And I imagine that was unsustainable. But I know you had... uh, you alluded to psychedelics and shamans and traveling yeah. around. Like what, so what changed for the your sake life? Of, for the sake of the conversation, I'll go in, into the full detail, but definitely check out the book if you want the full detail because yeah. it gets total rabbit hole Truman show. Like this is insane synchronicity. So 2017 comes along and I finally get to the point where I'm so lost that I'm desperate. And I'm like, I'm going to give anything a shot. And I'd considered myself like an entrepreneur at the time. And just a general consensus in that industry is your like health and wellness is becoming a more uh, prevalent topic in that industry, right? You hear talk about people talking about meditation and whatnot. And so I start to dabble in meditation and I start to dabble in yoga. And my first true yoga experience was really profound for me because it was a restorative class and a meditation class. And it was, I remember being in this yoga class and feeling like my mind was quieting down. And I felt like from 2011 to 2017, six years straight, the chatter inside of my mind was on full blast for six years straight. And for whatever reason, this one yoga class, I was able to turn it down a decibel or two. And so I was able to kind of get some stillness. And I remember being like, oh, what's this? And so I start leaning into yoga, I start leaning into just very basic, nothing intense. And then where things really change, and there's parts of the story I'm keeping out, but like I said, dive into the book, if you want the full story, it's fun. Um, I came across a book called Stealing Fire by Jamie Wheel and Steve, or yeah, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler that talks about flow state. And that's the title, it's you know, how to get into the zone. So whether you're an athlete or a musician or an artist, and you're just in that pocket and things are just coming very natural and freely for you. Um, so I'm like, Oh, I'll pick this up to become a better leader or salesman or, or, or trainer. And it gets to a part of the book where they talk about the scientific studies of psychedelic compounds and growing up as a like bro, white bro, Mormon sales douche, bro, like all drugs are meth. And if you do it one time, you'll be addicted and you'll die. You'll be homeless. So it's like, 
there's this big blanket on all of these compounds. Just don't ever touch them. And in this book, I talk about psilocybin and LSD, uh, DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca and MDMA. And I remember reading these studies and just being absolutely blown away, like jaw on the floor, like what? And like really prevalent people, you know, Tim Ferriss and, and Steve Jobs and the Elon Musk that have all, that all have positive statements in regard to working with these compounds. And I remember thinking like, oh, there's something here. Like there's something going on in this space. And so being desperate at the time, being curious and being open, um, coincidentally, two weeks, less than two weeks later after reading this book, I have the opportunity to have a, a psychedelic experience. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, I have to try this. And so on June 10th, 2017, and like I said, those that read the book will know the, the cool, the synchronicity of that date, but I had my first psychedelic experience and it was so, um, absolutely mind shattering, like thrown into the cosmos and had my entire constructs of reality blown into confetti that I felt like I was reborn. My you nose know, from that day, still to this day, um, those that are watching, yeah, I have this painting right here. I, I don't know how you can see it, but it has like its person and the minds or galaxy and it's blowing out behind them into like the cosmos. This is the most accurate thing I can say that happened to me on June 10th. And I was like re-merged with, with, with the universe. And this isn't, I know a lot of people that have psychedelic experiences have these same experiences. So this, I'm not like special by any means, but what happened in that experience left me so open and feeling like my mind was completely reset and I had a blank mind to recreate my life and recreate my constructs of reality and what's true and what's not true. And that night was so profound that it, it sparked my curiosity enough that led me down the rabbit hole, which eventually led me to do some really, really deep healing with, you know, shamans from Peru doing ayahuasca and psilocybin. And then eventually led me to work in, you know, a lot of therapy and talk therapy and EMDR and really integrating these two experiences that have, you know, completely to this moment reshaped who I am. It sounds like you push reset of sorts on your psyche or your ego or identity. It's like reset. And now we go again. Um, yeah. On that okay. point, I just, yeah, totally. There was my, you know, so how did I come up with the title of the book? So my second night of ayahuasca, um, you know, eventually I ended up working, doing an ayahuasca ceremony and night two of the experience. I took a lot. I, I, I drank probably a little too much. I would never drink that much again. It's, it's ayahuasca is a tea. It's, it's a, it's a very small, like basically a shot glass worth of tea. And I did multiple, multiple servings that night. And I got to a point where I like had broken through like the realm of reality and got like blown into oblivion and then rebuilt and felt like my mind had been like, like you said, reset, like, you know, when you're playing super Nintendo as a kid and the game freezes and you hit reset, you know, it's like, I got the reset. And so I remember like coming back into my body in that experience. And for the first time, it was like, I was being able to move my body for the first time. It was like, I'd never been able to move my arm up or clench my fist. And my mind had no subconscious chatter going on. It was completely silent. And I felt fully alive. And I remember in the ceremony leaning up and like looking at my fists and clenching it. I remember thinking, holy shit, this is what it feels like to be alive. 
And it was like pure bliss. And I remember literally saying that I'm like, holy shit, we are alive. Like, this is insane. So that experience is what sparked the title of my book. But yeah, it, it was a reset in a sense. On the June 10th, 10th night, your first experience, mm-hmm. what were you taking or what was the setting like? So I've, I've told this story a lot and still to this day, it's the most inexplainable thing that's happened in my life is on June 10th, I had a basically a breakthrough. And anyone that's working high dosages of DMT or whatnot know what I'm talking about with the breakthrough or have really deep psychedelic experiences. But I had a breakthrough on June 10th, 2017, and I took MDMA, which doesn't make any sense. And my first MDMA experience, I literally went through a dimension. I mean, this sounds crazy for people who haven't worked with this, and I'm going to sound Looney Tunes. I understand that. I embrace that. This is the part where I'm like, buy the book, read read all about it, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So I went through and I broke through into like another dimension of life. I don't know how to explain it. Like a spiritual world where like a higher dimension of reality on MDMA, which is incredibly rare. And I was able to like communicate with entities from other dimensions and download and feel the creation, creation's love and God's love for the first time in my life and like get downloads on ideas that are just way beyond normal beliefs. And it was all on MDMA, which didn't make any sense. And I've done MDMA multiple times since that experience. I've never had anything even remotely close to that initial experience. And I would equate it to, you know, since, since that experience, I've worked with a lot of compounds, including ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD, um, the most strongest compound would be 5-MeO-DMT, which is the toad venom. And I would equate my first time doing MDMA was equally, if not more intense than my experiences with toad, which doesn't make any sense. And I don't have an answer and I don't know why. And I even explained this to Rick Doblin, who is the president and, and, and of, of maps, the founder of maps that works with psychedelic compounds. And he was kind of at a loss for words too. And so I don't know, I don't know why I had that experience. It was so insane. The first time I did MBMA, but I believe I needed to have such an intense experience because I was so asleep at the wheel that I needed something to bring me back. And because that experience was so intense, it sparked my curiosity to continue to explore, which eventually led me to do my internal, like a lot of my internal healing work. So here's where I say to the listener, drugs are serious. Don't go out and do drugs based on this conversation. Uh, Consult a professional. Don't sue me or Doug or (laughs) the Long This Is Love Longs podcast. Um, Do your research, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I always make a note. I actually have a note in my book too that take this very, very serious. Like these are not toys. I am not a doctor. I am not a professional. This is my personal experience. Do not take my word for it. Uh, I have had extremely excruciating, difficult on the brink of like mental break experiences and psychedelics. Um, and they're just not toys. And I actually very, very, very rarely work with medicine now, um, because of these intense experiences. So do your own research talk to a professional. Like I do not in any way think you should just go out and and dive into this world. Yeah. Don't, don't go on Craigslist and find a shaman, (laughs) et cetera. 
Um, all right, man. So you've been on a journey. You pushed reset on your life in many regards. And now you are an author. I know you have a retreat coming up in Joshua Tree. And you have something called The Daily Shifts. Do you want yeah, to speak about some shifts. of that? Like, yeah. So, so this whole journey, was just, it was just ironic, you know, because... I'm trying to like figure out the answers of life and working with shamans and meditations and gurus and spirit, you know, like trying to figure out what's going on. And the most profound insight I had was actually along my journey of doing all of this exploration. I, I met a girl, I reconnected with a dear friend who was a friend for 10 years, someone I always had a crush on. And we decided to engage in a romantic connection. And for, you know, six months, it was a really beautiful learning opportunity. And I remember thinking like, oh, I finally have found the one. And I was so deeply in love and enthralled with her. And shortly into the, the connection, she decided she didn't want to have a, a romantic connection anymore. And it, it was devastating. It was like heartbreak to the max. I've never felt despair and sadness and loss at such an, a deep level. And what I learned from that as I was like going through this awakening and this healing journey was that I was still seeking something outside of myself, just like I was seeking the cars and the events and the experiences to heal myself. In this situation, I was still doing the same thing. I was looking for the guru or the right medicine journey or the right meditation teacher or the girl to fix me. And it was that moment where I'm like, oh, this whole problem all the way through is that I don't love myself. Right. And that was like the big moment where everything in my life started to shift again. And so I really started practicing gratitude and self-love and self-healing and really dove into my meditation practice and goal setting. And I had this epiphany along the way where it's like, Hey, my old industry of work, kind of like this busy, busy, busy lifestyle. There's so many incredible tools and techniques in this healing space, but they just seem a little unapproachable. Like it's a little hippy dippy. It's a little woo woo. A lot of people seem intimidated by the space. And so that inspired me to build the daily shifts, which is a mindfulness device for busy people. So it's like, how can I bring back gratitude practices, meditations, goal setting um, in a way, in an app form that anyone could use. And so that's what was the building box of my company, the daily shifts. And so it's all focused on as, as corny as it sounds. It's all, it's all focused on self-love. Yeah. As the, as the roots of the program. And then it manifests as daily practices, devotions, whatever language you want to use. Yeah. So there's daily practices. So there's an app, there's an online course, there's a workbook. I do in-person events. I do one-on-one. We have the book and it's these daily simple shifts, the daily shifts to help you come back to center. So really, really quick meditations in the app, really, really simple uh, breathing exercises and we track sleep and nutrition and, you know, accountability to make your bed in the morning and your diet and exercise. So it's very simple shifts. And I realized along this whole journey that you don't need the guru. I'm not a guru. You don't need the spiritual teacher. You just need to be, have a good relationship with yourself and learn to love yourself. And so these are the tools and practices that can help you get to that place for yourself. Hmm. And Looking at yourself now and where you are, how's that self-love, self-acceptance journey 
ongoing or like what what is yeah. an edge that you're currently facing on that journey yeah it's it's unpacking you know i'm in a much better spot than i was and i think it's you never get to a place where it's perfect i think and that's another big realization i had for my life too is it's there's no finish line there's no you know i title it happy when syndrome so many of us live in happy when syndrome like when i finally get the relationship or the better apartment or the raise or get my health back on track, then, then I can start living. Then life will be good. And really embracing that idea is actually taking a lot of pressure off of my life, realizing I'm always going to be trying to solve a problem. I'm always going to be climbing a mountain. And so it takes the pressure off of trying to accomplish it and hurry and accomplish it. And so where I'm at now, like one thing that I'm working on internally is still trying to peel back the and release the religious um stories and programming of supposed to be married and have a family by the time you're 30 right so i'm 33 now i'm single um just got out of a relationship and i realized a lot of the religious programming from when i was a kid of like I'm supposed to be married with kids by now. And like, what's wrong with me because I'm not. Mm. And like, I must be damaged. I must, something must be wrong with me if I'm still single at 33. And I realized like on a global scale, it's actually like incredibly normal to be a male at 33 and single. But you know, the religious programming from me, I'm telling myself that something must be wrong with me and that I'm unworthy of love. And so what am I dealing with right now is I would say is really working on, on, on healing and surrendering that. Mm, yeah, I love that. And not just the religious component, but I feel like in our society, the yeah, Western, society too, is like, it is better on like, there's like a scale. It's like, it's, it's better to be in a relationship than single. And if you're in a relationship, it's better to be in a marriage, period, full stop, just ticking those boxes. And it doesn't necessarily assess how fulfilled you are, how content you are, how happy you are. Yeah. So like, oh, you're happy and single? Well, that's not as good as being miserable and in a 30-year marriage. Like, totally. That has more oomph in our culture. Yeah, and and I'm I'm really feeling the pressure of that for the first time. Mm. You know, because I was so in my in my 20s and late 20s, I was so caught up in my uh, spiritual journey, and then I was caught up in my career, and now I'm kind of like looking at a relationship, and I'm feeling the pressure of like, wow, you know, like. I'm 33 and single. Like I catch myself saying like, what's wrong with me? Mm. You know, when the reality is if I take a, if I take a step back and back up, it's like, oh, actually it's incredibly normal. And you know, you nailed it. You nailed it on the head where it's like, yeah, I think anyone would take being happy and single than being in partnership and not being happy. Mm. And perhaps just reminding yourself of all of those experiences that have come before where it's like, this is just how it's supposed to be right now. And that yeah. it all works out in the end. I mean, it seems like you continually have landed on your feet, although perhaps in a spot or a space that you did not anticipate being. Yeah. I have a chapter or a section of my book called you can't predict the path. Mm. And everyone can relate to this. Of like in our lives, we try and predict like, okay, I'm going to start a business. And then in two years, we're going to have this much revenue. And then I'm going to get married. And we're going to live in this house. And, this is how life's going to unfold and life never 
ever unfolds the way you think it's supposed to. And so trying to predict the path, that's why I don't do like five-year goals. I was on a date recently and the girl's like, so where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like, I have no clue. I have no idea. I'm not even gonna answer that question because whatever I tell you, I guarantee you will be wrong. Yeah. You may as well have said 50 years, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just flashed to this moment years and years ago where I think I was talking to someone about her relationship and she laid out like an eight-year plan. Like, oh, in six years, we'll get married. And in seven years, we'll have our first of four daughters. And it was, I, I literally, this is not. We'll live, at, we'll live on this house in this neighborhood. I literally laughed in her face, man. It was like, a, it's like a bit of a shameful moment. And I'm like, oh, that was not very compassionate. But it was because I just sincerely mm, believed what you just echoed, which is like, you're yeah. going to predict life eight years out and you're going to predict yeah. Family, I'm, I mean, more credit to you. Like some people seem yeah. to be able to manifest anything with the snap of the fingers, but. And I think, you know, in my experience on that note, like the people that I've met that seem to be the most content and at ease with the life are there are the ones that are able to sit in the discomfort of not knowing. Yep. Right. I don't know how my life's going to play out and I'm okay with that. No, because the main reason I feel like we suffer in life is because life isn't happening the way we think it's supposed to. And so we fight and wrestle and resist and push up against that. But there's such a beauty in, you know, if someone asked me what a superpower I have now is, I'd be like, I can sit in the discomfort of not knowing how my life is going to unfold. And I think that's one piece of advice if I could give, you know, I'm not good at giving advice, but if I could give advice, it would be that piece of learn to love the mystery of life and be okay. Not knowing. Mm. Amen. Well, I think that's a wonderful spot to wrap up, man. Mm. Um, but Doug Cartwright, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your book. Um, I know you have an Instagram account, but is there any place you want to direct people? The daily shifts app? app um, yeah. Daily shifts app in the Apple store. We're, we're one of the highest rated mindfulness apps in, in Apple. Um, and my personal Instagram is at Doug underscore Cartwright. I do respond to all my DMs. So if anyone wants to shoot me a DM or feedback or a question, we'd love to chat with you. And the easiest way to get a hold of my book is on Amazon. So holy shit, we're live on Amazon. Cool. I will put links to that in the show notes. I so appreciate your honesty and openness in sharing your story, Doug. That was uh, very enthralling, but I also, like, I felt it. It was... Yeah. Uh, sincere and um and yeah i just appreciate you man thanks for coming by thanks for all that you do and i'm also excited to see what comes next for you it sounds like you stay are tuned living a life of twists and turns and you can't predict the path we'll see what happens thanks yeah. jeremy yeah absolutely all right so that was doug cartwright as mentioned in the conversation i've included links in the show notes to his app the daily shifts I've also included a link to his book called Holy Shit, We Are Alive. I've included a link also to this book, Stealing Fire, that he referenced because I've read it and I liked it and I think it is an informative read. So there's a link to that. There's a link to me, Jeremy, and my Instagram at Long Distance Love Bombs. I also send a weekly email if you want to get involved. All of my favorite articles, books, movies, songs, thoughts, quotes, etc., 
occasionally a weird cat photo. So you can sign up for my weekly newsletter there. Thanks for being here. Thanks for the five-star reviews, for spreading the good word, helping me to raise the size and scale of the ripples that my words and work has on the planet. And that is something that I take seriously and appreciate you for. So until next time, have a good life, have a good laugh, and savor the path.